bring the retreat to a close by talking about meditation and daily life. Could subtitle it, A Bad Situation is a Good Situation. Based on hearing some of you, you already have begun to appreciate what's available in coming here, silence, the opportunity to look into ourselves. And in a couple of the groups, the jokes were already starting about, oh no, do I have to go back to New York? I want to stay here forever and things like that. There are a few practical things that we can lay out hints as to how to practice back wherever you're going to. And I've been tried by many people and have been found to be helpful. Just things to do, certain techniques and ways of using our home environment to approximate what goes on here. I also like to approach the right attitude, at least from a certain point of view, which I found to be extremely important. You might sum it up by saying that every moment is a perfect moment to practice meditation. So from that point of view, there's really no difference from IMS between IMS and wherever you're going, New York City. And that may sound foolish. After all, this is a Buddhist meditation center. Before that, it was Catholic seminary. It's kind of becoming a holy place. Country, clean air, lots of gentle, caring people, vegetarian food. But this building was made from the same stuff that the buildings are made in New York City. When you go to New York City or Boston, wherever, human beings walking around, feeling, thinking, talking, some agreeable, not so agreeable. And if self-knowledge is at the core of what we're doing, then every moment is an opportunity to learn, without exception. It doesn't matter where we are. So from that point of view, IMS is an ingenious dramaturgical invention, I mean, extraordinary creation. It's theater. We've created a setting where we can come and be quiet and do all the things that we've been doing to help us learn how to pay attention to what is actually happening. And there are certain forms that we've used which have been very helpful or can be helpful. And now we have to go back to the battlefield. Some of what I'd like to say is what I've learned over a number of years from teaching meditation, mainly in the Boston, Cambridge area. Uh, Almost entirely, the people who are practicing there are have full-time jobs or part-time jobs, have families living together, going to school, etc. You all know the situation. And typically, people will start classes that are offered in Cambridge and Boston, knowing nothing about meditation. And little by little, some of the people come to see the possibility that it has in their life, really like it, and then maybe do a a day-long retreat and possibly a weekend retreat. And before you know it, they come to Barry and do a 10-day, weekend, two-week, three-month retreat, come back. And it's a mixed blessing. Part of it is wonderful because you can really learn some of the things that go on here, help you really understand the words that are used by myself and others in Cambridge and Boston. Just being here for a longer period of time under such congenial conditions help that along quite a bit. But then I found there's also a problem that comes up. And that is, particularly for people who take to this practice, a certain split develops. It used to be called sacred and profane. 
spiritual practice and daily life. And people benefit so much from coming here that a good deal of their time is lived in the past or in the future. And as we went into this somewhat last night with a group of us, that uh, much of the talk is as if uh, people are wearing combat ribbons you know, for the retreats that they've done. Jack and Joseph, September 1982, Christopher Christina, John Orr, August 1981. You know, all the different retreats and a lot of the conversations are about retreats that are over. You know, victorious missions. And then speculation about and spending a lot of time about thinking about, well, how are we going to get to the next retreat? Now, obviously, I totally endorse people coming here. And I totally endorse them coming back for the next retreat. In fact, I encourage it a lot. I put a lot of energy into that. But the other side of it, and that's mainly what I'm concerned right now, I think we all are aware of the value of what goes on here, is that in between, so that you may find yourself back home and seeing, and your mind, when it comes to meditation, is largely concerned with what has already happened, these wonderful retreats, that are over, or the future retreats that are possible. And scheming of ways to earn a living, make a lot of money fast so you can do the three-month course. And then on a smaller scale, recreating Barry in your home. That is, setting aside a room. Nice Turkish rug, prayer rug, little incense, some plants. No pictures of the guru, not in this tradition. Maybe a few, not too much. statue of the Buddha. And you only use that room or you try to use that room mainly for meditation. And it's a very sweet and peaceful place. And as the practice deepens, you start to taste genuine peace and serenity in that room. So that becomes an extension of it. In other words, we have Barry and we now have this room. And then we have everything else, which is dirty, noisy, rotten, and lousy. And we don't want any part of it. Now, we may say, yes, mindfulness all day long. Mindfulness in every, in every posture. Be aware of everything that you do. But it often becomes the biggest cliche in spiritual circles because it's clearly obvious that we're not doing it. By we, I mean people who are committed to this practice. And so, it's been a challenge to me to try to understand how, you know, not to throw, how to, not to throw out is it with the baby, with the bathwater? No, of course, to continue coming here and doing intensive practice. But what about the rest of life? And here are a couple of facts that I have found extremely important. The main one. If you take an inventory, a time inventory, of your life so far, and probably for most of us how it will be, probably at least 90%, 99% of your time, maybe more, will be spent in ordinary life, so-called ordinary life. School, at home, families, children, jobs. Factually, that's just the way it is. In other words, if, for most of us, we can't get to Barry that often. For some people, a three-month course once in a lifetime, or not even that. And some of you know how precious the weekend can be. Some of the old yogis, you know, you can't find time to go to the longer retreats. And if you really listen to that fact, really, it's a fact. The truth of the matter is, I find that in my life, I've made certain commitments, and I find that the way in which I'm living is such, that I can't do intensive practice very often. It simply is not going to happen, period, exclamation point, etc., Okay, so it seems as if we have no choice but to learn how to use all that time, enormous amount of time in situations, skillfully. It's not a matter of theory to me. That is, um, I'm not arguing that, let's say, one approach to spiritual development has been to let go of relationships, to let go of jobs, and let's say to live um, a monastic life or the life of a hermit. In other words, it, maybe that is a, a wise strategy. 
based on a realistic understanding of how difficult it is to do things in the so-called outer world. But I'm not in, involved in that controversy, that is whether uh, action meditation is better than just sitting alone and contemplating and the limitations of one or the other. It, more of it, it comes from the practicality of this is what our situation is. And that either we learn how to live wholeheartedly where we spend most of our time or we'll be living quite an illusion, a kind of uh, non-hospitalizable schizophrenia where we have the sacred times and places which we go to from time to time and then only most of the rest of our life which is dirty, noisy and sloppy with people who don't meditate and and don't eat vegetables (laughs) who blow smoke in our faces and never heard of tofu and things like that. <laughs> so the attitude is extraordinarily important um, to come to terms with that. But if it is true for you, and it is true for many people, it's a fact. So when you come to Barry, and please come as often as you can, really do it here as fully as you can. But when you leave, for goodness sakes, leave. Leave it behind. For example, it's very common to think of what is about to happen to you as a transition. I'm going back out there. And after longer courses, we talk about that in an even more dramatic way. Integration week. And this is an integration talk. But from a certain point of view, there's no such thing as integration. And that's the point of view that I'm trying to emphasize. It's true that when you leave here, perhaps you've attained a certain amount of calm and peace and your mind is a bit more concentrated. And perhaps you've had a good cry and you've released some tension and perhaps seen through some confusion or some decisions have become obvious what you have to do. And there's more, let's say, samadhi or concentration. And as soon as you get in the car and leave and as you get closer and closer to Boston or wherever it is, you know, it starts with paying tolls and uh, stopping and red lights and green lights. And before you know it, you're in a city or a town. Your samadhi starts to fall away. It's just, again, true. Concentration that you've worked so hard to attain here starts to disintegrate right in front of you. Not necessarily totally, but it's not, it doesn't have that same sharpness that perhaps is possible at IMS. Okay, now, if you, if every moment is perfect for practice, absolutely perfect. Then instead of spending a lot of time bemoaning the fact that your concentration has become weak or weaker because you've now had to go back to so-called daily life, it's really just a very intelligent observation to understand that, of course, as we leave the controlled setting like this, protected and set up intentionally to help us (coughs) calm down and penetrate more deeply into our lives, when we go out into the world with a whole set of different contingencies, that that's what happens. And so it doesn't have to be seen as a tragedy, so that if the mind is aware of seeing that process at work, that's still meditation. We haven't lost it. Nor as we note that our samadhi is falling away, that's all. It's not any different that when it's cold, we shiver, and when it's hot, we sweat. It's that kind of mind so that wherever we are, we're being with what is there. And when we can come back to Barry, by all means, we do. But when we're home, we're home. Okay, now, why this split comes about has other roots, it seems. Now, I'm speaking in generalities, and we'll have an opportunity to discuss it. I don't know how many people this affects. It seems to me that many of us have come to meditation because we've had a difficult time in so-called ordinary life, daily life. That has been a scene of suffering, of feeling that we have failed, let's say in relationships and jobs. It's been very difficult. We're wounded. Wounded soldiers. And then one way or another, we find out about insight meditation. And it is truly a blessing to find out about it because it does offer genuine release and relief from 
very difficult situations, sometimes situations that can't be changed in our home situation, our work situation, and yet it gives us an opportunity for us to change. So we come here for varying periods of time, in part coming here to get away from the scene of where we've been hurt and where we continue to get hurt, whether the hurt is irritation or pollution or uh, relationships that are not working perfectly right now or jobs that aren't exactly what we want to do. And we come here and we leave it to some degree and we observe it. And so then what is being asked of us in a way is difficult. It's saying, you came to meditation having been wounded in combat. You've come to a meditation retreat. Fine, you've healed up a bit and now we're sending you back. Many, much evidence in wartime how soldiers, if they're hurt a bit, have a very difficult time not wanting to go back into combat. And so there is, there is resistance. We have certain preconceptions and conclusions about the way in which our life has been and maybe is. And yet, the fact of the matter is that we are going back. That's the truth. And seeing all of these things as true can, can help it a lot. And what it does, it can restore dignity to life because sometimes what spiritual practice can do, if it's carried out in very specialized settings and with a lot of form, is it can undermine the dignity of daily life even more than than if you had never heard of meditation. Because the forms themselves become sanctified, the slow walking, the sitting in a cross-legged position, and all the many accoutrements that accompany Spiritual work in special settings. I'll give you an example. A few years ago, there was a person who was sitting in our group in Cambridge who came up and did a few retreats here. And I was up here on one of them and I was tremendously impressed with the depth of attention that I saw in him is walking and eating meditation. It's not that I was spending a lot of time observing him, but it was so obvious. It was ballet. I mean, the walk is totally into the slow walking, totally into contemplative eating. It was very beautiful. And I felt, oh, wonderful. He really understands. And then sometime later, I don't remember how long, we met on our way to the same party. And his walking was so incredibly disjointed. In other words, his mind was one place, his body was someplace else. I mean, dramatically so. And then we came to the party and the eating was chaotic and confused and rushed. Again, quite dramatic. Not, it's something that would stick out. And after a while, I just couldn't resist. And so I approached him and I brought up what I, my observation. You know, what happened when we were Barry? Wow, you were terrific. You, know, you would have won the Slow Walking Award you know, for the retreat and the Eater of the Year Award. And now, look how different it is. And we, at first he didn't grasp it, and then we talked about it, and it became clear that when he came to Barry, it was a spiritual practice. It was sanctified, the slow walking and the eating. It was meditative, with a little you know, chamber music in the background. And then when he came back to Cambridge, it was just just walking and just eating, and I don't mean it from a Zen point of view. Those of you who don't know what Zen is, it's all right. <laughs> Some, you know, just less baggage to let go of. And we had a good laugh at it, but it does point to something. Now, clearly, it's an extreme. But if we misuse, it's not to say that slow walking is the problem or contemplative eating, but it's a a misunderstanding. And sometimes I feel we further that with some of the language. For example, we refer to what we've all been doing for this weekend as intensive practice. As you probably know, it can be. It's quite intense. And picture if you'd stayed on for a couple of weeks, it gets to be more intense in three months and so forth. And so that kind of wording 
to some degree contributes to the special quality of this expression of meditative living and undermines, not intentionally, but undermines the possibility of ordinary life having exactly the same compelling nature as something to do wholeheartedly. And yet, when you look closely at some of the things that many of us are attempting to do in our lives, say in Cambridge and in Boston, and I'm sure where you come from, if trying to have a sensitive, humane, equal, egalitarian relationship, let's say between a man and a woman, living together, if that is an intensive practice, I don't know what is. <laughs> or staying awake in some of the jobs that we find ourselves at having to do some of the things we do and having to listen to some of the things that are said to us. If that is an intensive practice. And after a while, sometimes even the word practice, I would find not even wanting to use that and just wanting to use life. So that we have one perspective, which is a a life of awareness and sensitivity. And sometimes that life gets expressed at IMS with sitting and stillness and talks and interviews. And at other times it gets expressed, I don't know where, in a roller coaster at an amusement park or playing tennis or making love or in a movie. And no difference. They're both, it's all the same. It's all, it's one life. No split, no separation. And yet, it's clear that coming here is special in its own way in that it's set up to help us develop the kind of awareness that makes it possible to go back to where we live where it isn't set up that way and to be able to be alert and sensitive and to learn. So what I'd like to suggest is that you reflect on the attitude which has been emphasized here all week, weekend, to view what comes up, not just in the sitting practice, but wherever you are, not from a problem-centered point of view, but rather as a challenge, a challenge in terms of learning, a challenge in terms of self-discovery. Now, if you can start to ease into that perspective of seeing everything as serving you in terms of self-discovery, then even people who are giving you a hard time, they are unknowingly providing the conditions for you to go more deeply into yourself by giving you a hard time, by not being an understanding, sensitive meditation teacher type or yogi. In other words, we turn it around. That's what I meant by a bad situation is a good situation. Those everyday life situations have enormous energy in them. And so when we run into these situations that we would rather not be in, but we find that we are, if we see them from the point of view of the potential that they have for going deeper, for self-discovery. Now this, I don't know, this may sound corny, it's sort of the beauty of learning, the joy of learning, which I know has been damaged by the school system and how we've been brought up and all, but it's not, it's damaged, but it's not dead. And I think a lot of what we're doing here is reviving that joy of learning. This weekend is a kind of consciousness kindergarten. And I don't mean that in a demeaning sense at all where we start to walk again and eat again, learn how to listen, how to talk. Right speech is not meant just for the Saturday night Dharma talk. You'll have ample opportunity to test that as you go back and hear how you actually speak to people. And you won't unless you're aware. And if you do, the way you talk to people is bound to change. So with this attitude of learning, self-discovery, where we welcome everything, and here I'd like to just leave you with an image. We started on it last night for the Choiceless Awareness, if you recall. It comes from Chinese Zen, which I've adapted it a little bit for our purposes. And sometimes what is said in, in Chinese Zen is, always stay in the position of the host. Never become the guest. So, If you can understand that as the perfect host, 
That's, a, that's awareness. And in the sitting posture, as we used it last night, we're visited by all these guests, different thoughts and feelings, moods, bodily states, sounds, smells. And some of them are lovely and wonderful and a joy to be with when they, these guests that visit us, because they all visit, they don't stay. So in this particular party, we're learning how to be an extraordinary, a host extraordinaire, which means that everyone who comes in is welcomed. Everyone that comes in is shown to the hors d'oeuvre table, is asked about what their job is and where they come from and what they do, and, and is introduced to people. And some of the people who come in are drunk and have bad breath and weren't invited, and they knock over things and they, they, they eat with their hands and lick their fingers and are loud and insult your, the other guests. So it becomes quite a challenge. And that's choiceless awareness. And we lose it. We fall back in and we forget that we're, we're the host. We have to look out for the safety and the, the enjoyment of everyone who's at the party. So we lose the position of host. And, the, and what, the, what Chinese Zen is saying is, Stay in that position of host. Okay, now expanding that from the mind, the sphere of mind, to our daily life, it's the same thing. We have to now start seeing all the situations that we find ourselves in as necessary and wonderful aids in development along the path. Now, I'm not suggesting we look for trouble, although in a moment I will, under certain circumstances, I will make a suggestion that it can be helpful to look for trouble a little bit. And that means that each of these situations, um, although in one sense bad, is good. The challenge arouses energy. And if you can stay with it and do it once, it gets easier. And you learn. And learning has this wonderful ability to, it's self-reinforcing. When you learn something about yourself, <clears throat> at least my own experience has been that it gives me energy. The energy comes from the learning itself to further deepen more learning, to go deeper, to inquire. Also in Chinese Zen, often they work with a koan. And for those of you who don't know what that is, it's a kind of enigmatic question, which uh, is using thought to work on thought. Sort of what is the sound of one hand clapping? Perhaps most of you have heard that by now, and many, many of those. And one Chinese Zen master said, when you find yourself in the marketplace and just a yearning for the mountain monastery, you know, for IMS, yearning for your meditation room back home. At that moment, stop and reinvest that energy of yearning into the present moment. He, he said, into your koan. But we're not working with koans. Life is our koan. So when you find yourself yearning for IMS, what I would do is pick a retreat, send the check, and get it over with so you know you're coming here. And then don't waste time on that. When you find the yearning come up, reinvest that energy into where you actually are at that moment, no matter where that is. And from moment to moment during the day, ask yourself where you are. Where am I? What is my correct situation right now? I'm doing the dishes. Okay, then for goodness sakes, do the dishes. I mean, this is you talking to you. And so forth. Okay, um, with that as a kind of a frame of reference, let me make a few suggestions that uh, many of us have found to be helpful. Some of them are rather obvious and many of you are already doing it. But there are also people here who are here for the first time and are very new to meditation. It is helpful to set up a daily practice of sitting. And it is helpful actually to set aside a nice room if you can. So find a place and a time 
And I don't know how long that time should be. You know, everyone says a different, you know, 20 minutes in TM and others say one hour and a half an hour twice a day. I really don't know. One good way to go at it is to set a, a bit of time for yourself that's a little bit more than perhaps you, uh, a little bit challenging, but not so much so that it becomes medicinal, you know, like taking cod liver oil or something. But if you can, perhaps an hour, an hour of silence, just starting off each day, whether you call it meditation or not, just sitting quietly and reflecting, not thinking, but just sitting there and observing the life of the body and of the mind and preparing to enter the day, setting the tone for the day, because when you sit quietly with that kind of sensitivity, you're reminding the mind that this is a valuable thing to do and perhaps there's a greater likelihood that you can continue to stay awake during the day in all these highly charged situations that are bound to come up. If it's not an hour, okay, less. Now, some people seem to need a fixed time period. Experiment, find out for yourself. That's part of learning. Some people need a fixed time period. One half hour, 45 minutes, and use either a stopwatch or a timer or incense, a stick of incense, is what the ancients used to time their sittings. And you just sit for that length of time. Another way to work is to start off with you know, what seems reasonable. For one person, 20 minutes is an eternity. And so you might want to make it 15. And for another person, an hour is fine. And let that grow naturally, because it will, as you start to deepen your practice. You'll want to do it. And you'll want to do it because of you, not because of what teachers say or what books say, you'll see the obvious value of self-inquiry, of mindfulness. Otherwise, don't do it. I mean, if you're not getting intrinsic evidence from your own experience that this is indeed helpful in living, then I don't understand why you should do it. Move on. Try a different meditation technique, different teachers, etc. Okay, so let's say you do find that, and so you sit a bit each day, perhaps if you can again a second time. Very, very helpful, really important. And regularity is important. Perhaps for most of us more helpful than, let's say, sitting an hour one day and then letting three or four days go by and then sitting for three hours and then letting a week go by. Instead, every day, even if it's just five minutes, sometimes we're so busy that we think we just don't have any time to sit but you can usually find five minutes, let's say, in the morning. And if you know you only have five minutes, the quality of your attention can be really red hot, just right there for five minutes. And again, reminding the mind, it's kind of a mnemonic device, that awareness is something that, that more and more is part of our life. Okay, so the sitting practice, very helpful. Um, You can do what you might call mini-retreats or self-retreats in your own home. And some of us in Cambridge have been practicing that. It's very, very helpful. Let me give you uh, a sense of some of the experiments we've tried and how they have been helpful. Uh, one person found that Fridays were very good. That is, they would finish their job at about 12, 12.30 every Friday. And so they set up from 1 to 6 every Friday. And that time was protected for sitting. They'd come home. They didn't answer the phone. After a while, friends understood that that's not a time to come visiting. And, you know, no books, no nothing. Just and set up a schedule for yourself. Now, if you're really new to this, remember you're doing it alone without the support of a community, then start modestly. Maybe that's too long from, let's say, one to six. Maybe set aside a couple of hours and start off with a schedule. For many people at the beginning, that's really necessary. Where the sittings and the walkings are reasonable and only you can determine that. You know, maybe a half an hour sitting and half an hour walking, whatever blend seems right for you. And later on, you may want to experiment with no schedule, just working spontaneously. Sitting sometimes for a couple of hours and even longer. Later on, for sure, that happens if you stay with this and sitting and walking, and some people do some hatha yoga with awareness, and that can also uh, develop what we're trying to develop here. And so you can give yourself your own retreat in your own home, uh, 
Someone in our group couldn't get into the Christmas retreat. And so, instead of moaning and complaining and feeling whatever it is people feel when they can't get into a retreat, he just gave himself his own Christmas retreat in his own home. And it was just beautiful. Isn't that right, Richard? (laughs) We need some testimonials sometimes, otherwise you'll think it's just Joseph and I you know, talking about our product. So it's up to you, you know, to, to, to do this. And you can work that into your life. Kind of self-retreats at home. Now, I'm not talking about coming here and doing self-retreats here. I'm assuming that you know that this is always available. Okay, other things that can be helpful. Now it's not so much the sitting, but how can we help the process of daily life along? You know, Improving our ability to be sensitive in what is called daily life. I stumble with that word because that's all there is is daily life, wherever we are. And I'm using it as if this is one thing and we go back out there, it's daily life. There's only daily life. You can do things, uh, little experiments like this. One person had a fear of crowds. Not so much that the person was totally incapacitated, but a all of his life, an ongoing anxiety about crowds. And so we worked out something where he would take the train during rush hour at Park Street and come from Park Street to Harvard Square, which is only about a 15-minute ride. But rush hour is crowded. However, the difference is that he would enter the, the train equipped. In other words, forming the intention before entering the train to remain aware of whatever went on during that. And of course, anxiety would come up, repugnance, distaste for being crowded in, for the way in which people relate to each other in these crowded trains. And that was used to learn. In other words, taking a life form that's already available and making that a special practice. In other words, using it as training because he needed that particular kind of training. So although the instructions are to be aware in every situation, some of us have stronger needs in some situations. And what you can do is take them as special training. You do it for yourself. You set it up. It might be intentionally climbing a mountain or, you know, not not the Himalayas, but, you know, something not so high or um, as one person did here and reported to me, a conquered fear of dogs by walking around the loop. At first, not being able to take a walk at lunchtime, around at, uh, at retreats at IMS, and then slowly understanding that he couldn't leave here because of all those dogs that are, if you haven't done that walk, there, you know, there's these dogs that are in their living by running out and going bow-wow, bow-wow. <laughs> and they get food and a place to crash for that. And some of us take it personally when we walk around. <laughs> so after about two or three days, he realized that he was limiting himself. And so he did that walk, knowing full well that he was going to be terrified, and he was. And he just brought awareness to the walking and felt himself swallowing hard and heart palpitations and came, did the full circuit and was wringing wet, totally exhausted, but of course triumphant. And the next day it was easier. So in other words, you can bite off a little bit more than you're used to taking on, but don't, don't make it so much that you can get overwhelmed. And sometimes life itself presents us with situations and sometimes we have to invent them using life itself. Um, I've used something that's been quite helpful for me. I've done these, what I, you might call, mindfulness walks. That is set aside perhaps a half an hour or an hour. And I would do it, just walk into Harvard Square, which is where I live, with no, no destination. I'm not going shopping. I don't have to meet anyone. I've set it aside, just as we set aside the slow walking here. But I walk at a natural pace in the midst of people, and I try to maintain the highest quality of attention I can for half an hour or an hour. That's what I'm doing, and it's wonderful. And then, you know, that spreads, and it becomes just natural. You don't have to set aside special time or place. Can you see the possibilities? It's really up to you. And each one of us knows, because each one of us has a different life. Okay, any questions? Sure. Um, yeah, what do you, uh, what is your, I don't know, 
attitude or opinion. Um, say when you're in Harvard Square or someplace about, what I'm concerned about is really being open and mindful. And there's a lot of very, uh, can be a lot of really negative uh, energy. And I guess about how to uh, stay open and, and be safe. Yes, and safe. Okay, we're not learning how to be stupid and set ourselves up. Remember, this is a dangerous neighborhood. Awareness can tell you that. Maybe you walk around it. I'm not. See, I'm not suggesting that you do that. That's that's your intelligence. It's for you to decide that. I don't really know the answer to that. Each situation will call out a certain response. It doesn't mean that you have to go through a combat zone. Yeah, I don't mean think like you're going to get physically. Oh, I see. As much as just uh, mentally, emotionally. Okay. You, you're walking down the street and you know how some of these police cars go by the sirens? The sound is worse than the crime that they're going to prevent you. <laughs> okay. Okay, and you hear it and immediately we set up resistance. It's a kind of an opposition. And it's tiring and then we say some uncomplimentary words about the police and something like that. Instead, the next time, just surrender, open to it, just as we've been learning here and get a free hit of energy. And say, you know, it's great. The police are giving you all this incredible energy. Just let it in. Don't resist it. Experience, you know, your negativity towards it. And it's the same. A bad situation is a good situation. The, you see, the, the, all that we, the main principles are in the teaching. What I'm saying is not new. And all it is is a matter of applying it, perhaps in situations that are not talked about in most of the books that we read. Because perhaps most of the teachers were living in monastic or or different situation. And so the principles I have found to be sound. But now I feel our generation has a challenge of working them out in the midst of city life, relationship, etc. It's not going to be handed to us. We have to find out how to bring this practice into those situations. But I feel the principles are sound. Or as you would notice, fear, if that's what you're experiencing. And you take it from there. Sorry, probably what, whatever question you ask now, it will all be the same answer. I'll try to say it in different ways. Pay attention with sensitivity to our life as we actually live it. Not as we think we live it or as we think we should live it, but our actual life from moment to moment. How do we actually live? And you won't find out unless you pay attention you'll be living in some conclusion that's probably erroneous and self-serving. Now, if you have other friends, and of course, this is something I forgot to mention, uh, group sittings together, even if you can't come to IMS so often, even if it's just one other friend to just sit together, maybe just once a week, or you know, inquire and find out if there are groups around where you live, that's very, very helpful. Surely you must see that from just this weekend so that we have support, particularly in terms of frightening things or unpleasant things. Any other questions? I'd like to just build on that question if I could for a moment. You'd like to what? I, I would like to go one step further with that, question, with that answer if I could for a sure. moment in terms of understanding. Let's say the situation is it's not a police vehicle. It might be a fire siren. It tends to be louder. Are you saying that opening to that noise, in fact, is a way of protecting yourself and that one would not be... I'm, I'm thinking of the decibels of yes. noise. Yes. So I'm, what I'm trying to understand, are you suggesting that relaxing and opening to that is a way of also of protecting yourself? Or one could one also with awareness uh, as this vehicle was approaching close one's ears yes. that's another way of protection. Exactly. Good. You see that it's not a formula or a recipe or cookbook. That is, is there's an objective reality and if, and if the sound is so deafening and loud awareness might tell you to walk away from it and go around a different street or close your ears. A- absolutely. Or what you might do is, if you are, but if you've made the choice to stay there, and sometimes, you know, that's what I'm saying. If you are there and there's no escape from it, then learn how to move with it. How to notice the contraction in the body, how to notice uh, mental resistance to it, and allow it in. I don't know if I'd call that protection, because then you're, 
it still has a little bit of the boundary going. It's more, that's what's there. That's what is. That's what's happening. And it turns out to be easier if we move with it than if we fight it. And so at any moment, intelligence is part of awareness. Definitely. Leaving the situation, covering your ears, could be a, a perfect action. Any other questions? You've been told what? what? Did I ask those questions? Oh. And I'm still conscious, but I want to know if this promise is anything like eternal life or. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you. Uh, <laughs> okay, you've asked the big question. Uh, I guess it does. It does, but not necessarily 
perhaps what you think of as your body living forever. Or as from, from a certain deep point of view, and that has to be tested by each one of us, you were never really born. We'll leave you for this one to take, take back home. <laughs> you were never really born, so how could you possibly die? And so, of course, you, we all are eternal. The illusion is that we think we are these finite entities that are coming and going and living and dying. And so, from, a very, very, from the point of view of absolute truth, nothing has happened. So, nothing to worry about. <laughs> You're all set for life. <laughs> but practically speaking, <laughs> you better take very good care of this life or you'll never even get in the running of finding out if what I'm saying has any possible truth at all. Reflect on things like timelessness or infinity. Or an image we use in one of the discussion groups of the ocean and waves. That as you focus on waves, it looks like everything is changing and coming and going and dying, being born and dying. But if you look at it, the ocean, nothing has happened. Same water, just taking on different forms, waving itself. And the waves are real too, and the ocean is real too. Well, maybe that's a Hollywood ending for us. <laughs> Happy ending. Okay, thank you all for working so hard and staying with it not cutting out early to go back and spend Sunday and, I don't know, ransacking some restaurant or bar. (laughs) And it has been a very harmonious retreat for, I think I can speak for Joseph, we've commented, very cooperative and may all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.